All right, good morning. Revelation chapter 3 in your Bible, Revelation chapter 3, and um, I do have to apologize in that I don't have a handout for you this morning. Um, I went to print them out and our printer was out of ink, so didn't have time to remedy that, so anyway, don't have any papers to hand out. There are, as I mentioned last week, I do have extras of previous handouts. There's at least one of most of them. There might be a couple missing, but anyway, if anybody needs one of those or would like them, they're available. So since I couldn't print that out, I am using an old copy of one that I had from before. Um, I tried to add a few handwritten things, so if I get stumped, it's probably trying to read my writing, but Anyway, Revelation 3, let's do this this morning, if uh, you would, we'll read verses 14 through 22, and uh, we'll just go around, I'll, I'll just stay out of the reading, but if you'll start, uh, Pastor. And unto the church, <clears throat> unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel him to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this portion of your word. And I pray that you'd uh, help us each to, uh, number one, uh, understand it properly, but also then take heed to it. Um, and Lord, that you would uh, work in each of our hearts and lives, help us to love you and serve you as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This letter, to, which is the last, of course, the seventh of the seven letters here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, this letter, I think, okay, my opinion, I think this is the most difficult of these seven letters for a variety of reasons. And I mean that from a couple different angles. Um, this perhaps is seen, can be seen as the most, um, uh, the most negative of these letters. Uh, it's, it's perhaps the most serious sounding of these letters. Uh, but also several of the contents of this letter have uh, some interesting 
uh, interpreting about them. All right, let me just put it that way for now. We'll, we'll mention those as we get to them. But this, of course, is the letter uh, from the Lord Jesus to the church at Laodicea. And uh, we'll follow the same outline that we've been following with all seven of these churches here, this sevenfold outline, although um, as you perhaps noticed as you read through this, there are some missing elements uh, in this letter as well. But uh, this is, of course, the last, and it seems perhaps to be the most severe, um, although, of course, these have not been progressively so. All right? It wasn't like it started with the best and then progressed to the worst. That's not the case. Um, in fact, the last letter, the letter to the church at Philadelphia, was a very uh, positive letter in the sense there was nothing that the Lord condemned that church for. And, uh, in fact, he made them some wonderful promises. And one of those, of course, concerns the rapture. And we're going to revisit that subject a little bit later in, in, uh, as we get into the book of Revelation further here. Um, but uh, this, this particular letter here this morning is uh, really, in a way, if you read it, it's a sad letter. And, and, of course, it's a very serious letter from the Lord to this church. Um, there are some things said here that, again, are, are very unique and, uh, and, and really, really serious if you uh, think about these, all right? So uh, let's go ahead and we'll just proceed again in the, in the same outline. We see the church addressed, and of course this church is said to be the church of the Laodiceans, and some, now the way it's worded in our KJV, it's different than the other six letters, all right? under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. In most of the others, it says something to the effect of the church in or the church of a particular city. Here it says the church of the Laodiceans. Um, but it's not unique uh, in the way it's worded. It's just translated a little bit differently. Um, but that aside, all right, the church here in Laodicea is, is referenced in other places in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Colossians. Uh, we have references to uh, this church. In fact, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul refers to a letter that he apparently wrote to the church at Laodicea. Now, we don't have that in the Scripture, but he refers to that in the book of Colossians, and he, uh, of course, the city of Laodicea, all right, there, were, there was kind of a, a tri-city effect, if you want to say, that made up kind of one big metropolitan area. You had Laodicea, Colossae, and then another city called Hierapolis, and those three were very close in proximity, and again, kind of made one big uh, metropolis-type area there, but um, we know nothing outside of uh, just references in, in other things. We don't know anything from the Bible about the church, if there was a church in Hierapolis or not. But uh, Colossae, of course, we know some things about. And um, then we also have reference, as we just said, about Laodicea. Um, and, and again, I think it's interesting that you read that it seems that Paul wrote a letter to them. Uh, so he was, he was very familiar with them. So the church obviously had been in existence for some time. Probably it was planted in a similar time frame uh, as the church at Colossae. Um, and uh, that being a result of that great uh, Asian 
evangelistic campaign that we have mentioned a couple times. It's referenced in Acts chapter 19, particularly in verse 10. But um, the city of Laodicea was a very prosperous city in that first century. It had some very lean times uh, previously in its history, but in the, uh, in the first century A.D., it was a very wealthy city, and uh, it was a very prosperous city, and there were several uh, things that it was known for as far as uh, its, its trade and so on. It was, uh, it was a city that was built, um, its wealth was built from the trade of black wool, which was a very unique type wool, and of course, I guess, very expensive in that time. And then it also had a medical uh, college and so on, and they had developed a, uh, an ointment for eye, for eye problems, uh, just put it that way. And, and, and it's interesting that in that, in this letter, you'll see a reference to the Lord talking about clothing and talking about eye salve and so on. Um, and, and I think, again, they, they have to do with the, the setting of this church here. But um, so the city of Laodicea, again, it was a wealthy city, all right? And that, again, when you, all these things pertain to what the Lord says about these churches and so on as far as what we know about these. But the, uh, the context of the church, again, uh, the, also Paul mentions knowledge of believers in Laodicea and even indicates that he wrote an epistle to them in his letter to the Colossians, and there's a couple references there. Well, actually, you don't have the handout, but Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, and Colossians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Paul references the church at Laodicea and a letter that he wrote. He calls it an epistle to Laodicea. Uh, and likely, again, it was a church that was planted during the great evangelistic campaign that lasted perhaps for five to ten years and is referenced in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 19. But anyway, moving on, we see the Lord Jesus, as is the custom with every one of these letters. We see the church addressed, then we see Christ described. And he gives a self-description here. This is him, the Lord Jesus, talking to them, and he says these things about himself. Now, in every one of these seven letters, he says things about himself, and they, they seem to be obviously pertinent to that specific church because he doesn't repeat these things in all seven letters. Um, but So these are things that are pertinent to this particular church. And so Jesus presents a self-description here that's fitting for this church, and there are three basic descriptions that he gives, I guess you could say, of himself here, right? So notice in verse 14, and I guess I'll move that. Uh, verse 14, he says, Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. All right, so these... Three things, the, the two words in the middle go together, faithful and true witness, all right? These things saith the amen. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? The amen, all right? Uh, I, I don't know how familiar you might be with this particular word. Of course, we use that word, the English word amen, a lot today in, in context of, uh, of things. You know, you hear it said... 
at the end of a prayer, typically. You hear it said sometimes in church if, you know, uh, somebody, I guess you would say, agrees with what is being taught or preached or something, you'll hear somebody say amen, and typically that's what it is. But this, uh, this word, the scriptural use, if you want to say, of this word, it appears often in the Bible. Now, most of the time, it's not translated amen. Most of the time, in fact, the majority of the uses of this word are found in the Gospels and are spoken by the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, you're, you're familiar with it, all right? Uh, I'm trying to think of a verse right off the top of my head. John 5, 24. The first two words in the verse are amen, amen, all right? It's, uh, again, when I say this, you're going to realize this is often said by the Lord Jesus, but many times you'll hear him say something and he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, all right? And then he'll make the statement, but it's these words, all right? It's amen, amen, all right? So that helps give some indication of what is meant by this when Jesus says, I am the amen, all right? Um, So this, 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 Word, the scriptural use of it, again, is, has really two sides to it. One is, it is asserting truth, all right? In other words, when Jesus uses that in those statements in the Gospels, I mean, uh, it's not, now think of it this way, it's not that what he says when he doesn't use those words isn't true, all right? Have you ever heard somebody talk to you and they'll say, I'm telling you the truth that, you know, and it's like, well... Does that mean you're just trying to really emphasize that, or does that mean when you speak other times it's not the truth, you know? (laughs) But uh, obviously with the Lord Jesus, that's not the case, okay? But he's really just emphasizing, he's asserting uh, something there. In other words, you really should listen up because this is really important. This is really the truth, right, that you need to listen to. That's, That's kind of the idea. So it's, you could say, an assertive use, and this seems, to, again, to be the way that it's used by the Lord Jesus many times in the Gospels. But also you find it elsewhere in the New Testament. For instance, if, uh, let me just, I'd, and I didn't uh, rehash looking up these references this morning, but um, Andy, would you turn to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16? But it's used... Again, several other times in the New Testament, and this is more in keeping with how we use the word amen today. The idea is, okay, you're expressing agreement with something. All right, you're, you're saying, yes, I attest to that, that that is real, that that is true. Something of that fact. You're, giving, you're bearing witness to something, I guess, is another way of putting it. All right, that's, that's more in line with how we use it today, all right? Uh, but, but the word appears, again, in the, in the New Testament, and uh, most of the times it's in that first usage, right? So how does this apply to the Lord Jesus here in Revelation 3.14? Well, if it's in that assertive sense, all right, similar to Jesus' other assertive uses uh, in the Gospels, 
it would seem to be emphasizing the veracity of the following of the following descriptions of the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's saying, I am the Amen. And then just emphasizing, all right, barely, barely, the faithful and true witness, all right? I don't think that's how he's using it, but that's how it would have to be if that's the case. So if it's simply just the idea of, a, of a, uh, uh, an adjective describing himself, which seems to be more what he's saying, all right, it's, it's just asserting that Jesus is the truth, which is a true statement, all right? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. Now there it's not the word amen when he says the truth, but that seems to be the way he's using it here. I am the amen. I am the verily, the truth in that sense. Um, uh, that's, I think, the best way to, to understand it, all right? But either way, he's asserting something about himself that is true, all right? And then he goes on to say he's also the faithful and true Witness. Uh, this is an interesting statement that he makes here. Right? He's the faithful and true witness. He uses the word true here again, along with faithful, which they are companion words. All right? But he's the faithful and true witness. All right? um, perhaps you're aware, but the word witness, as we see it in, in the Bible, in the New Testament... All right, it's it's translation of a word that actually our English word martyr comes from, right? And they have to do with each other, right? But uh, uh, he's not saying I'm a martyr, but that's that's where our English word comes from. That word, right? But he's the one who is the true and faithful witness. But what is he witnessing? What is, he, what, what is a witness? Back, let me back up for a second. What is a witness? When we say somebody's a witness, all right? All right, they're, they're giving a statement, bearing a testimony, if you want to say, of something that they know based on what they've seen, heard, experienced, all right? They're, they're bearing witness to that fact, all right? Now, you think about this in the case of the Lord Jesus, all right? He is the true and faithful witness, and I think you could understand this in, in several different ways, but obviously everything that he knows all, okay, and he sees all, and so anything that he bears witness of is real, it's true, but I think in a specific way, all right, based on other statements in the Bible, all right, one of the purposes in John chapter 1 of Jesus becoming a man is that he came to reveal God. He came to show man what God is like. And in that sense, he came to bear witness of God to man. All right? But Jesus is the witness of God. He is the one who is the true witness of God. Um, and again, we could, we could talk about various things of that, but... He's the faithful and true witness, and these are both statements that are added to this, again, verifying the fact that whatever he is bearing witness of, whatever he is testifying about, is faithful and true. You can count on it. He's the one that really knows. And in some of the other letters, of course, those things aren't said here, but think of this, they've already been said before. And all these seven letters, although they're individual letters, they still are a conglomerate together as well, 
all right? But he's the one that has the seven spirits of God, for instance. So he's the one that sees and knows everything. He's the one that, uh, you know, he, he fully knows. There's nothing that escapes his attention. There's nothing he doesn't see or hear or know about, all right? Because he's God, obviously, all right? So moving on. Uh, you can see that both of these things so far have to do with the fact that what he is saying is going to be something that is true, can be counted on, it's reality. And I think that, that part's important when you think about what else is said about this church because there is definitely a difference in human perception and reality in the case of this church. And, and that's not just, we've seen that in some of the other churches to an extent, but I think in this church to a greater extent. Um, but he's the one that really knows, all right? Now, the third statement about Jesus here of his, in his description of himself is an interesting description and is one, by the way, that is, whether you realize it or not, it's used by some cults particularly the Watchtower Society, to, uh, to propagate a false view of Jesus, of the Son of God. All right, but notice what it says. it says. He says he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this is an interesting statement here, um, but the beginning of the creation of God. All right, some as I said, claim this verse teaches that Jesus was, what they're saying this verse means is that Jesus was the first created being. That's what they say this means, all right? Because he's the beginning, according to his statement of himself, he's the beginning of the creation of God. So now let me just say, based solely on language, okay, that could be a possibility, all right? Now let me just hasten that follow up with that by saying that I believe that's an impossibility based on other clear teachings in the Bible. And by the way, um, this, is, this is one of the things that's very, very important when it comes to studying the Bible and, and understanding, interpreting the Bible, right? A, a, dif, uh, you know, a difficult and particularly an isolated, difficult passage in the Bible should never be looked at to overthrow multitudes of clear things in the Bible. I mean, in fact, just the opposite is true. Are there things in the Bible that are difficult to understand? And perhaps, you know, you, you read them and you think, man, that doesn't seem like that should be, you know. Yeah, there are, all right? But, and, and even Peter, all right, he, he said of some of the things that Paul wrote that they are difficult to understand in 2 Peter 3, right? However, all right, a very important principle when it comes to uh, hermeneutics or interpreting the Bible is the clear things in Scripture, all right, are what should shed light on the unclear things, not vice versa. You don't have this one passage that, you, that seems difficult and you're not sure about it, that that pulls the rug out from everything else that's clear in the Bible. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's just dumb, all right? stupid. It's very, uh, it doesn't make sense to approach anything that way. I mean, you wouldn't approach anything else that way. All right, so the things that are clear shed light on the things that are not clear. 
Somebody's worded it this way. An if should never countermand a very, a verily, verily. I mean, and there are many verily, verily type statements in the Bible about Jesus, who he is, and so on. All right? So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying he's the first created being? No, because number one, he's not a created being. All right? In fact, John 1.1, you're familiar with the verse, and this is a verse that the Watchtower has also greatly uh, muddied, all right? Um, but that verse says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, all right? Now, the grammar of that verse is extremely, extremely important. Uh, the word was, the verb was, in that verse. It occurs three times, all right? But it's an imperfect tense verb in, in the Greek text, and it is stating, a, it, it's communicating a state of being that is in a continuous existence in the past, all right? And it's in relation to the phrase, in the beginning. All, those, all three of those statements are in relation to the phrase, in the beginning. So, in the beginning, the Word was already in existence. That's what that says. And in the beginning, the Word was already with God, existing with God. And in the beginning, the Word already was God. Why? Because he's always been God. He always is God. It's not, and, and when you, and by the way, when you, when you think of it from a theology proper standpoint, what the Bible describes about God, if whoever it is, let me just word it this way, and I, I, I hope you understand what I'm saying by this, all right? Whoever it is that can qualify as being God according to the Bible has to have always been God or he can't be God. In other words, God is not something that some being attained to because that's not the total perfection and eternality that the Bible describes of God. So it's impossible for anyone or anything to become God. God has to have always been and always been exactly what he is, or that contradicts what the Bible teaches about God. And does that make sense, what I'm saying? In other words, there's, you can't become God, all right? There are other cults that teach beings can become God, okay? The LDS, for instance. Um, and that God, they call him Elohim, all right? That God, he was a man at one time, but he became God. I mean, that's 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 completely contradictory to what the Bible teaches about the character and attributes of God. He is either perfect, complete, eternal, self-sufficient, or he's not. He's nothing. He's never been. I mean, you, whoever God is, and again, I'm not saying that in a... But I mean, whoever the Bible teaches that God is, he always has to have been God. You can't become God, because that means you're not truly complete and perfect, all right? And the word, you, the, the word perfect in the Bible in the New Testament that's applied to, for instance, believers and so on, is not the same as that, all right? It's not the same as that. 
Um, anyway, we'll, but so the beginning of the creation of God, what does this mean? Well, the word itself means beginning, all right? That's how it's most often translated in the New Testament. Now, it can be, there's several aspects of that. It can be the beginning in the sense of time. It can be the beginning in the sense of an agent. In other words, one who began something, okay? Um, or it could be the beginning in the sense of origin, uh, one with whom a process begins. All right, now in that sense, can that apply to Christ? Yeah, he is the one that began creation. He is the creator, right? Now, so, so I think it's very most keeping, if you're going to, if you're going to, uh, look at the word as being the beginning of the creation of God, that that's how it applies to him. He's the one that began it, all right? So he's the beginning, or in a way you could say the beginner. He, he's the one that started it, all right? Uh, it doesn't mean he was the first one created. Um, because again, according to what the Bible teaches about Jesus, he is eternal, he's uncreated and self-sufficient, just as God the Father is. However, the word can also, and, and in that sense, you would think of it as the first cause, all right, the one that began it, all right? But however, the word itself also has a secondary meaning. It also means chief or ruler. In fact, it's used that way a number of times in the New Testament as well. Authority, ruler, chief, and in that sense, that word could apply to him in that way. He is the chief, the ruler of the creation of God. Bible makes that clear that that's the case. But in either way, the bottom line is, it cannot, based on other scripture, and the Bible doesn't contradict itself, based on the clear teaching of many parts of the Bible, it cannot mean that Jesus was the first one created. All right, it cannot mean that. However, think of it this way. All right, Colossians 1 says... Uh, Get the verse started. So let me turn to it real quick. Colossians 1.15, you're familiar with the verse. It says, Who is, speaking of Christ, who is the image of, uh, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? That's a similar statement, but it's not the exact word. But in that sense, what's being communicated is a position. All right? Just like... In the whole concept of the firstborn son in the Bible, all right, that is a position. It's not necessarily just an order, it's a position. Um, think of that of the 12 sons of, Je of uh, Jacob, all right, Israel, who, I mean, the one who by birth order, the birthright should have been was Reuben, but before Jacob died, he made it clear that Reuben didn't have the birthright because of a sin he committed, and that birthright was given to Joseph, as a matter of fact. Now, and then, and then even beyond that, of course, Judah, his, his tribe is the one that excelled, and uh, Jacob even made it clear that Shiloh, that's the word he uses there in that Genesis passage, that Shiloh was going to come from Judah, or the Messiah, all right, but my point being is that idea, that concept of Christ as the firstborn, that's, that's again, that's not necessarily talking about, doesn't have to be talking about, it can, but it doesn't necessarily have to be talking about an order 
of time and birth and so on, but it's a position. In that economy, the firstborn son received half of what, the, what, what was the father's, and the rest of the kids, the rest of the sons, had to split the other half. I mean, that, that was, a, that was a, a, an official rank and position for the purpose of certain things, okay? But, but so again, keeping, keeping all the things in mind, the beginning of the creation of God, I wanted to spend a little bit of time point this out because there are, are groups of people that make a big deal of this verse, okay? But again, even, even if it's possible to say it's difficult or unclear, it's not, it's not right to overthrow the rest of Scripture based on something of that sort. All right, I mean, it, it just, that's, that's what cults typically do, by the way. They focus on just very, you know, remote, unclear statements in the Bible, and they ignore hundreds of very clear things in the Bible. That is very often the case of how cults develop their, their doctrine. All right, it's, it's a, a twisting of Scripture, of course. Anyway, so let's move on. But uh, so thirdly, the con, I didn't, the commendation deserved. We see this in every one of these letters, at least for the most part. Um, but this church was lacking any really commendable works. In fact, the Lord commends them for nothing. Now, there was another church that that was the case for. Anybody remember which one of the previous churches that that was true? of that the Lord Jesus didn't give them any commendable words. If when we're done the, this portion of Revelation, studying the seven churches, and we have a Jeopardy review or something, this might be something that's important. <laughs> well, that's this church, but so that's true of this church, but one of the previous six Two churches before this, all right? The church at Sardis, all right? Anyway, but there's no words of commendation. In fact, it's interesting in this case what the Lord says. It's similar. Uh, remember at Sardis, he said he knew their works, that they had a name, that they were alive, but they were dead. Remember that? In this case, notice what Jesus says, verse 15 lost my place here. Uh, he says, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because, notice, and this is why, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So again, a similar uh, a similar, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to use, but a similar situation in that Sardis had this, now he didn't say about them that they said they were alive, but he said they had a name, they had a reputation that they were alive, but they were dead, really, in his view. Here, this church at Laodicea, they actually thought, notice that, they said that they were rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But Jesus said, you really don't realize your real state. You don't have anything. You're poor, miserable, wretched, poor, blind, naked. I mean, they had a completely skewed view of reality when it came to their condition. They were 
totally mis, mis, uh, miscued on that. So this Laodicean church may likely have had larger numbers, greater finances, and more resources, if you want to say, than the other churches in, mentioned in Revelation. In fact, it seems that was their focus. But uh, obviously, these are not the things that impress the Lord about a church, although these are often the things that attract and impress men today. So let's, let's examine this, all right? So we move on to the condemnation deserved, and that's really what all this falls under. So in spite of what this church and others may have thought, the Lord tells them the truth. And I think this is important, again, because they're thinking, or you know, in their mind, this is how they were, and Jesus tells them something completely different, something completely the opposite, but remember what he said about himself. He is the amen, he's the, you know, the truth, and he's the faithful and true witness. So he's going to testify to them what is really true. It's faithful, it can be counted on, it's trustworthy, and in spite of what they thought about themselves. And perhaps then with that in mind, that's where the idea of him being the Creator, because He's the one then that, like Isaiah says of the Lord God, He's the one that knows the thoughts of man. He's the one that created man. He knows all about man. There's nothing that escapes Him, and He can't be deceived. Think about that. We can deceive people, but we can't deceive God. In fact, we often deceive ourselves thinking things that aren't right, but God's not deceived. He knows the whole truth. So, I don't know that we'll get to completely finish this, but uh, we might finish it next week. All right, we, we still have a little bit of time here, but I'm just giving you a warning ahead of time. We might not get it completely finished. This is, this is one of the parts, though, of this, of this letter that uh, is why I had said at the beginning that I think this is one of the more difficult letters because there's some interesting things said here about uh, this church. He says then uh, in verse 16, well, 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I wish, I, uh, excuse me, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I've heard a lot of things said about these two verses over the years, and uh, I've, I've, I've actually heard a preacher say that this means God wishes they were wicked or, you know, completely holy or whatever. I don't believe at all that God's saying He wishes they were, you know, obviously He wants them to be spiritually right and on fire in that way, hot that way, but I don't think it means that God wishes they were wicked instead, okay? I've heard people talk about that in that, that, re, that regard, um, because he says, I wish, you know, I worked that thou were cold or hot. So what does he mean by that, all right? This is an interesting uh, thing and, and, and all. And he says, um, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. All right, so let's take a few minutes and examine these 
these two verses here, all right? Um, this, is, this is obviously, let me just say that no matter what the specifics here point to exactly, this is a pretty serious statement. Do you, I mean, can you think of anywhere else in the Bible where the Lord tells somebody, and I'm going to put it in our vernacular today, you make me sick. I mean, that, that's a pretty serious thing to say, right? Um, so, I mean, when, we, when, when you hear people say something like that today, obviously that means they are really, really bothered by something, if they, if they mean what they're saying, right? Not just using it as a flippant phrase. But if they really mean it, that means there's something that really, really bothers them, really gets under their skin, so to speak. It's really aggravating to them, all right? So think about it in that regard. I mean, the Lord Jesus is pretty... He's... He is not happy with this church, okay? He's not happy with this church. He says, they're lukewarm, they're neither cold nor hot, but he would rather they were cold or hot. Now again, I, I don't think in any regard that's saying the Lord wishes they were wicked or, you know, super on fire holy for him. I, I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because, number one, that would go against his character. But then he says, so then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. All right, so uh, he does say he wants them to either be cold or hot. And uh, I, I believe that this, the gist of this accusation is that they were sickeningly, sickeningly useless to the Lord. Now, I think the point can be illustrated with water. And let me, let me say this as well then. All right? If you were to do a word search on the three key words that are used here, lukewarm, cold, and hot, these exact words translated lukewarm, cold, and hot are not found anywhere else in the Bible. All right? So this is the only place with one exception. The word that's translated cold here is used in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. In fact, let me turn there and read it real quick. You're, you, you've heard the passage, all right? But uh, Matthew 10, 42. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. All right? The words there, well, if, if you were turned there and, and look, you would see, all right, cup of water, cup of cold water. The word water is italicized. That means there's, it's supplied by the translators to communicate the idea here, all right? So a cup of cold is literally what is behind it, okay? But obviously it's implying a cup of cold something to relieve their thirst, okay, which would normally be thought of as water in that sense. All right, so that is the only place outside of these two verses in the book of Revelation that any one of these three words occurs. In fact, the, the Greek word hot here is, is the word, literally, it's zestos. I mean, I thought about, you know, zesty when you, when you think of that. It's probably where that comes from in English. So hot 
in that sense, when you think of that, it might not even necessarily be temperature. It might be spicy or something of that sort. But I, anyway, and I'm just using imagination there with that. Um, but the point being is, okay, I, I personally think that this is an idea, what the Lord's talking about here is the concept of, say, like water. Water is good for, it has good uses when it's, when it's you know, for consumption, when it's cold, right? And it has some good uses for consumption when it's hot. For instance, coffee, right? Uh, some just don't know what they're missing with that, right? Andy? Uh, but, but, but water that's like tipid, it doesn't have a whole lot of use, at least for, again, for consumption. And I had this, it, this was interesting, this happened years ago, uh, it was when we lived in Missouri, and um, it was a Sunday morning, and I, I got to the, the church house, was, it was early, I was trying to get things on and, and stuff like that, and there, this, the church building there had a water fountain, but the water fountain had problems, I just have to say that, and it often didn't work the way it should, all right, um, so... If you were thinking about it and remember that, before you would want to drink the water, all right, you want to come and turn the, you know, turn the valve and let the water run for a minute, and then after it ran for a few seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, whatever, the cooler part would kick on, all right? So then you could just let it run for a bit and then get a drink of cold water. Anyway, this particular morning, I... Wasn't thinking about any of that. Went to the water fountain and pushed the, the, the knob and took a drink. And you know what my reaction was? I went into the, the drain of the water fountain. And I thought about this passage when I did that. Because in reality, okay, again, I, I believe that's basically the point of what the Lord's making here. All right? It's, I mean... The church in its condition, is what he's saying, is of no value to him. It's of no use to him, I should say. It, it's not cold. You can't use it for something that's refreshing in that sense. It's not hot. You can't use it for other purposes, you know, that you would use hot water for, to cook something or uh, drink something hot, all right? Um, I mean, it was, it was useless to him. And his reaction is what? Pfft. Now, the thing against that is, okay, the word that's, uh, when it says, I will spew thee, literally, it's a bit, I'm about to spew thee. The word spew is, um, I think I pushed that a couple times. Um, the, the word spew is literally a word that would literally most of the time be translated vomit. Sorry to have to say that word right now, but... Uh, but when I think about this, all right, that doesn't originate in your mouth. That originates in your stomach. And the verse specifically states, the words in the verse specifically state, I'm going to spew thee out of my mouth. Now, perhaps it could still relate to that, but again, my... My personal take on it is, all right, that's basically what the Lord's saying. It's like coming to a water fountain and it's nasty. And your reaction is, this doesn't help a bit. I mean, if you're really thirsty and you get some stale, 
water that might be 70, 80 degrees and is, you know, just sitting there. I mean, that's nasty. It really is. And that's your normal reaction is just, you know. I, I've been other places and had similar reaction with water fountains, all right? But, um, but I think that's the idea of what the Lord's saying. And basically then the communication that he's giving to this church is in their present condition to him, they're useless. He has no use for them because they are not being usable. Now, before we get to the next parts, I'm going to stop because we don't have time to to do those justice. But um, I believe that's the first characteristic of what he's talking about here. He also mentions that they're deceived and they're proud, and we'll we'll, uh, get to those here next time. But... uh, when he talks about, and, and you can't look at it because you don't have a copy of the handout, but Lord willing, next week I'll have one for you. But in the idea that they're useless, right, in their present condition, the Laodicea in church was of no use to the Lord, and I have some references there, but think about these matters, all right? Number one, a lack of testimony. Uh, uh, A person with a lack of testimony is of no use to the Lord. Now, that could be an unsaved person. But that could also be a person who's saved and has messed up their testimony before others. And if that's the case, there's some corrective measures that need to be taken in order to have that be true again. But a a lack of testimony. I mean, think about... Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they, what, may see your good works and do what? Glorify God. Not pat you on the back and tell you how good you are, but to glorify God. That's the purpose of a good testimony. Um, But then also, secondly involved with that is an indifference to spiritual matters. And there are other scriptures uh, in the New Testament that that uh, point to that as well, an indifference to spiritual matters. Someone who's indifferent to spiritual matters is not useful to the Lord. All right. Thirdly, a questionable conversion. And this kind of opens the door and leads to some of the more, what I think are the more difficult things to understand about this letter because of what the Lord says. He does address them as a church, but yet things that He says about them are not very church-like based on what the New Testament talks about a church. Anyway, so we don't have time to do those things justice. We'll get back into those uh, next time, Lord willing. But this is a serious letter, a serious letter. And again, it has the same phrase at the end, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So all churches need to heed this and listen to it, but also all individuals, he that hath ears. We should all pay attention because there are, there's obviously spiritual dangers that uh, are possible for each and every one of us. And this is a, this, this church here is, is in a bad, bad way, spiritually speaking. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for at least the part of your word we've been able to look at this morning. Pray as we proceed in this that you would, uh, again, just... Uh, work in our hearts, help us to be spiritually fortified, 
and uh, then be useful to you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.